Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. You want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 18, continuing on our series in Luke. We just finished last week the, the rich ruler, and we're continuing on in that section. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 34. Verses 28 through 34. As you turn in your, in your Bible, and we're going to pray. God, we ask that, Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, that you would give us wisdom. Help us to see and know the things that you are saying to your people. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and, and soften our hearts and give us the gift of faith. Lord, help us to not just be hearers of your word only, but doers. And God, whatever you are calling us to do, God, whether it is something great or little, God, whether it is immediate obedience or something, God, you want us to think about and ponder for the next few weeks or days, God, we pray that you would show us the way. God, reveal Jesus Christ to us, and I pray that you would just give us a great love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to read this quote from Joseph Stoll, who I, I believe was the uh, president of Moody Bible Institute for a number of years. And just in thinking about the things that we had talked about in the past few weeks, he says this, The real point of material, materialism is not how much we have, but what has us. It's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold to it. Not what we have, but how we got it. The test of materialism is whether our goods have made us proud or grateful, self-sufficient or God-sufficient. And as we read this morning, we're going to go back and start in verse 18. We're going to read about a rich ruler who had all the possessions he'd ever want. He was in a place of great authority and influence. And God began to speak to him. Jesus Christ began to speak to him. We see what his response is. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is, pos- what is impossible with men, 
is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This rich ruler was unable to forsake the things that he was holding on to. The very things that had captured this ruler's heart were the things that Jesus was telling him to forsake in order to follow Jesus. And he was unable to do it. Now as the disciples are listening to this encounter, something dawns on them. Because they see the rich ruler as someone whom they understand that God has blessed, God has provided, God has done many great things for. And so surely if anyone was going to receive the blessing from God and eternal life, it was this ruler. And Jesus confronts it and says, no, no, no. What is what you think is the way things go, the way you think things run and operate on this world are not the same standards the way that God operates, the way that God understands things. And so the disciples, in a moment of panic, you could see Peter saying, but we left our homes. But we left everything to follow you. Doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that count for something? I mean, tell us that we've done the right thing here, Jesus. I mean, you've just confronted this, this rich ruler with the fact of just his call to leave everything and follow after you. We've left everything and we're following after you. And here Jesus offers his disciples a promise. A promise with perspective. He's directing their attention forward. Not what is necessarily given up, but he's offering them something that says, look, look what is gained. I don't want you to concentrate on just what you've left or all the, the comforts that you've, you've left behind. I want you to look forward to see what is it that I'm promising you in these things. He says, give these things up and you'll receive many times more. What does that look like practically? Does it mean if you give up your junky car, the, there's the hope of an Escalade in your driveway one day? Is he talking about leaving your current wife for more wives in the future? Okay. He's not talking about those things. What this looks like, if you turn over to Acts chapter 2, turn with me over to Acts chapter 2. There's this amazing passage at the very beginning of the church. And in this, in this passage, the apostles have just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up and gives just a simple gospel message, and thousands of people turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. And there is an amazing move of the Holy Spirit that brings people together. And this is what happens in verse 42. And this is all the people who had given their lives to Christ, the birth of the church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread in the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And so we see in this passage, at the very birth of the church, this call to be a community and and brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, he isn't arguing, or he's not, the goal isn't a communist state where people own nothing and we just share everything. But the point is this, that no one would have need. That as we come into this body of believers, that as we come into this people, this kingdom, God's reign and rule in our lives, as brothers and sisters, that we would help and support and care for one another. That there would be no one amongst us who would have need. That whenever we would hear of someone in need, who is our brother and sister in Jesus Christ, we would look at them as if they were our real brother and sister. Because they are. Because these relationships in Jesus Christ supersede even our family relationships. And if my brother called me and said, Hey bro, look man, I need $50, I'm in a pinch. I would first say, look, you can come over and clean my cars and then we'll talk. No, I'd say, no problem. What do you need? In the same way, Jesus is calling us to this kind of family relationship, saying, look, you think you're giving up something, and I'm offering you something so so much greater than you can possibly imagine. A family of believers, not just in the hundreds, not just in the thousands, but in the millions. I'm offering you a, a large family to gather around, to help support one another, to care for one another, to bless one another. And he says not only that, but also the provision of eternal life. He says, look, give up what is temporary for something that is eternal. Let go of what is temporary, what is fading away, that which will one day rust and fall apart. I want you to invest yourselves into something that is eternal, that will not fade away, that will not go away. I'm offering you the hope of eternal life. In the context of this passage, he isn't calling us to live our best life now. He's calling us to put our faith in Jesus Christ and follow after him with all of our hearts because he is more supreme. He is more glorious. He is more majestic than anything else that we can hold on to that we think will bring us life. And for this rich young ruler, we think, wow, this guy had everything. Influence, power, money, fame. He had it all. Everything the world says, what makes you important, this guy had. And Jesus says, that's not where life is found. It's found in me. It's found in fellowship with me and following after me and giving up all that you have so that you can be with me. And he identifies in this guy's life a love for money, power, possessions that he wants him to lay down before his feet. He wants people, he wants you and I to trust him and love him more than anything else in this world. More than money and power and possessions and fame and influence and relationships and jobs and houses and cars family even. He is calling the ruler 
the disciples, the Pharisees, the sinful woman, the tax collectors, the scribes, the lepers, and you and I to follow him and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what he is calling you and I to. That is what he's calling this, this ruler to. That is what he's calling the disciples to. And that is what he's calling us today to. To love him and follow him with all of our lives, with all of our heart. Because Jesus is better than money, possessions, power, influence, jobs, and sports. This promise is good for me because I tend to forget that Jesus is supreme. I was invited this week to a Bears game in a skybox. My first experience at a skybox at Soldier Field. And as I sat there surrounded by tables of food and Travis Maple sitting next to me with mounds of wings on his plate, stuffing his face, I had to remind myself that this is not where life is found. Life is not found in this luxury and comfort surrounded by all the delicacies of this world, TVs and food, comfortable chairs. I mean, it's just, it was awesome. But the thing is, I had to keep reminding myself, this isn't where life is found. Even if I did this every single night or every game or whatever, life isn't found here. This isn't where life is lived. But every message, every advertisement, everything that we see, every value of this world, it tends to pull us towards what it says life is found. It doesn't point us towards Jesus Christ. It points us towards comfort and ease and leisure. It points us away from Jesus Christ. And the good news for us in Jesus Christ that He is our life, not just on the day of salvation, but every day of our lives. He is calling us to submit and surrender and to cling to Him with all of our lives every single day. And that everything around us is telling us that life is not found in Jesus Christ. Every comfort saying, look, there's, this is where life is found. Ease, relaxation. Those things are good things. Bears games are good things. Skyboxes are great things. But if we tend to find our life in these things, God says, you've got to let go of it. This is not where true life is found. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. And that's where he keeps calling us over and over and over again. He calls us to follow him and lay down any encumbrance in our life that would keep us from following him. Whether it's leisure or TV or internet or hobbies or whatever it may be, home projects or our job. He's saying give up these things that have temporary value for something of infinite worth. And that's Jesus Christ. Someone once asked the missionary and explorer, David Livingston, said this to him. He said, after David Livingston had lost his health, his, life, his wife was, died in Africa, they said to him, what sacrifices you have made to this missionary? To which he replied, sacrifices? I never made a sacrifice in all my life. I think when we get perspective, when we see the promise of Jesus Christ, and it gives us a sense of perspective, that this truly is where life is found. 
that all these other things that promise life, life is not found in these things. Where the rich young ruler was unable to release and let go, Jesus is calling us, you and I, to release and let go anything that would keep us from him. As I was preparing this message, I had the feeling like I'd preach the same message like four other times in the Gospel of Luke. Because I feel like I have. This message of Jesus Christ to come follow after him, to release everything else, to make him first, to put our faith and our trust in him, this is the message that Jesus continues to bring to people over and over and over again. This is the same message that he brings to the guy who's wanting to follow after him, to the rich young ruler, to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the disciples, to everyone he comes into contact with. This is the exact same message. He's not bringing different messages to different people depending on what they need. This is the same message that he gives us over and over and over again. He knows this because he knows that we tend to forget. The urgency to follow after him, to forsake all these things, we forget. This week, Michelle and I were sitting at, a, at Starbucks on a little date, really nice time. Ran into Richard over at Starbucks. And uh, after Richard, after he'd left, another, someone else came up and began to talk to us. It was a friend from high school. And uh, the last time I saw him was a couple of years ago. And at the time, he was going through just a messy divorce. And um, he was going, it was on rough times. And we just talked a little bit about the Lord and invited him to church and just trying to help him out any way I could. But he just wasn't interested in his own things going on. And as we begin to converse with him again, Michelle and I both just catching up and where things are, and it was a very nice conversation. Very nice time. We just talked for, you know, 10 minutes and kind of moved on. And at the end, Michelle said, oh, man, you, you had the opportunity to really either invite him to church or, or something, you know. And it, it just, I didn't do it. I was too timid. It wasn't that important to me at that moment. I didn't sense an urgency. And I forget that this call to follow Jesus is our only hope. It's not better eating. It's not time management. It's not a better job. It's not somehow getting your life on track. We need Jesus. This person I was talking to, he needed Jesus. The hope for his life was Jesus Christ. And when I lose a sense of urgency, when I lose a sense of of what God is calling us to do, it becomes so easy for me to just put that on the, the back of my mind and just kind of go on cruise control in my life. And I feel like God is continuing to remind us there is an urgency in this message. There is an urgency in the call of the gospel. There is an urgency for people to respond to Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Apart from Jesus Christ... We have no hope. And that is the call that he continues to bring before us every single week. That is the call that Jesus continues to confront people with every single time he encounters people. He brings them to this encounter with himself and he says, look, there is a fork in the road. Follow me. Come after me. And I'd like to think in this, Jesus might have said to the guy, look, come follow after me. And the guy says, I don't know. You're you're asking a whole lot of me. Jesus didn't say, well, think about it, get back to me in a week, 
Don't worry, take your time. Here's my email address. Let me know if you change your mind. Hey, I could really use you. You're someone with influence. Man, let's just, we'll try to connect at a different place. He doesn't do that. Confronts him with the truth. He challenges him to give up everything, to follow after him. He is calling us to give up anything that would hinder our obedience to following him. Jesus is telling us, asking us, commanding us to release anything that would be on the throne of our lives and of our hearts so that he could sit there forever. I want to read this quote from J.C. Ryle, who is an old Anglican pastor from 150 years ago. But I love what he says. He says, The complete fulfillment of this wonderful promise has often been experienced by God's saints. Hundreds in every era of Christian church could testify that when they had given up everything for the kingdom of God, they received such grace that they were kept in perfect peace. They were enabled to rejoice in the sufferings and delight in their weaknesses. In their darkest hours, they were enabled to rejoice and to count it an honor to suffer for their master's name. The last day will show that in poverty and in exile, in prisons and before judgment seats, in the fire and under the sword, these words of Christ has proved true. Friends have often proved faithless. Royal promises have often been broken. Riches have flown away. But Christ's promises have never been known to fail. That is our promise from Jesus Christ. To come follow after Him. The reward is so much greater than we can imagine and eternal life. That we would have relationship with Him in following Him, in knowing Him, in serving Him. But this is all only possible because of what he says in verses 31 through 34. Let's continue on in our reading. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was being said. This is the the third time where Jesus is clearly telling his disciples what is about to happen. And really the third or fourth time that he, he alludes to it. So almost six or seven times now he's either spoken clearly or alluded to his death and resurrection. There is no doubt what awaits Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. There's no doubt in his mind what is about to happen. He's on the last lap of the race. He is going to head into Jerusalem shortly, and he knows exactly what is going to happen to him when he gets there. He wants his disciples to know What is going to happen in this progress of redemption? He wants his disciples to be clear about what's going to happen. He says, look, I'm only telling you the very things that the Old Testament prophets have been telling 
the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. In Psalm 22, and Psalm 16, and Psalm 2, and Psalm 118, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 50, we can go on and on. These things have been foretold from times past. I want to just quickly look at Psalm 22. If you want to turn with me over to Psalm 22. I just want to show a couple of things. When he says the prophets have been talking about this, this is exactly what was going to happen to Jesus Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1. We're going to skip through these verses quickly. The psalmist writes this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you heard those words before? Psalm 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Verse 16, he says, the dogs, For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And if you remember the, the passion narrative, those are exactly the things that are going to take place. They've been talking, they've known these things. He says, I don't want you to be surprised at what's about to shake down in the capital. And in this passage, Jesus clearly describes his trial, his execution, and his resurrection in plain language for his disciples. And what I love about this, whenever Jesus talks about his execution, he never leaves off the fact that he's going to rise from the dead. His execution only ends in victory. He wants us to remember and his disciples to remember this doesn't end in defeat. This ends in victory. I will rise again on the third day. Death cannot hold me in the grave. I will be victorious. But the disciples still don't get it. They understood the, they understood the Messiah to be a conquering king, not a suffering servant. They understood the Messiah to come and bring victory for Israel over all of their enemies, not accomplish redemption for His people and accomplish redemption for every person from every tribe and language and nation. Even those who were oppressing Him, Jesus Christ made available salvation for them. There's a tendency in each one of our hearts to only hear what we want to hear. This happens with our kids all the time. The thought of the creator of the universe to come down to rescue his creation by taking their place on the cross for their sins is what the Apostle Paul says is foolishness to people. It's a stumbling block. People are still blind to it today. We think about Jesus Christ. We can say he's a good teacher. He's a good moral example. He showed what love is. But is he the savior of the world? Is he the, is he the Messiah? Is he the one who can only bring salvation? And the cross today is still misunderstood and underappreciated. We've somehow boiled down the message of Christianity to be stay out of hell, live a blessed life, go to heaven when you die. But the message of Christianity is simple. It's this. Jesus died for our sins. 
That's the message of Christianity. Jesus died for our sins. When the Apostle Paul boils it down in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, I want to pass on to you what is of first importance, the foundation of the church, what is most important for you to know. I'm going to pass on to you what Christianity, I'm going to boil it down. This is what Christianity is. It includes a bunch of amazing things that God has done, but it's a simple message. Jesus died for our sins. Those five little words. That is the message of Christianity. And as Jesus Christ's death and resurrection made the promise that he made to his disciples and to us possible. The hope of eternal life is only possible because of what Jesus Christ said just now. He's saying, look, these things are possible. This relationship is possible only because I'm going to the cross to give my life as a ransom. Without the cross, there is no come follow me. There is no promise of eternal life without the cross. But Jesus Christ endured the cross and scorned its shame for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12. It says, this is how we know what love is in 1 John 3. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is his great love and compassion for us. We think about the messiness of the cross and just the call to come follow him. We need to remember that it's a call to come follow one who has given himself for us, who loves us, who's poured out his life for us, who came and died and stood in our place condemned, who took the wrath of God upon his body so that we never would have to face the wrath of God ourselves. He took our place. He has lavished us with compassion and mercy, and love. Now He calls us, each one of us, to come and follow Him. I want to encourage us this morning and challenge us. Have we fully surrendered to this call? Is there anything in our lives that we are clinging to? I want us to see just another re-engagement with God's purposes that's empowered by His Spirit. The call to follow Jesus is not like a hobby that we give attention to when the time comes, when we desire. The call to come follow Jesus demands all of us. Demands all of us. And so as we close in communion, I want to encourage us that maybe there's areas of our lives where we need to repent and to trust Jesus, to follow after Him. Maybe there's an area of our life that we've held, we've held too closely to that Jesus is saying, release these things and follow me. For this rich young ruler, it was money. But for others, it may be a hobby or it may be a relationship or maybe a job. Those are all good things. A job, a hobby, those are all good things. Relationships. But if we place those things before Jesus Christ, he's saying, put those things in the proper context. Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and everything else follows after him. That he takes second place to nothing. So my call this morning, my challenge this morning is this, that we would place him first. That if there is anything that is competing with his call of obedience to follow him, we would release it to its proper place.
in everything that we do. You guys can pass the elements out. And as they do that, I'm going to pray. And then Brian's going to lead us in communion. So Lord, we pray that as the elements are being passed, Lord, that you would speak to us and direct us and guide us. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and direction. God, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. Lord, help us to come to a place of repentance where we need to repent. And faith where we need faith. And God, give us the strength to follow after you. God, we thank you for the gift of jobs, relationships, comfort, leisure, hobbies. God, but we pray that those things would all take their place behind you. That there would be nothing that we would so pursue and go after that would keep us from following you. So God, we surrender ourselves to you again today. In Jesus' name. As they continue to pass out the elements, I just want to encourage you to just take a moment with the Lord, asking him to put his finger in your life and on your heart the areas of your life that you need to surrender to him. And then if there's an opportunity for repentance, commitment to him, this would be a perfect time to do that.